stay hungry, stay foolish. As always, the Innovation Show is proudly brought to you by Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to transfer funds with ease and manage multiple payment workflows. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's get into the final part of Framers with Kenneth Kukier. I am so happy to welcome back for part three. Unfortunately, our finale, it's bittersweet for me anyway. The author of Framers, Make Better Decisions in the Age of Big Data, Kenneth Kukier, welcome back. Thank you so much and so pleased to be back. Man, people are loving your content. I've got so many beautiful messages from people, great comments across the different channels. So thank you so much for your time and for your messages and for particularly part two really meant a lot to people and to me as well. So thank you for all of that. Thank you. No, I'm really grateful. I'm really pleased by that. So let's dive back in. I'm going to try, we've got an hour together today. I'm going to try and get through some more of the principles today. I loved one, and this is particularly interesting for people working in change or creativity, is the story behind the consistency principle. And in the book, you tell the story of Steven Spielberg and a movie that I absolutely loved, Minority Report. It's such a good example of the consistency principle and of framing. And it is such a, it was such a delight to write about it because it got me to experience and talk to so many interesting people. So one of the people who I spoke to was Peter Schwartz. And Peter Schwartz uh, is a, is a bit older now, uh, but he was for many years the head of scenario planning at Shell. He was doing that in the 80s. And he came up with ideas that many people thought were so far-fetched and ridiculous. I should also say Shell at the time had what was considered the world's most foremost scenario planning sort of department that were looking at future trends in the time horizons, not really of one year or two years, which is seeable and predictable, um, but in the 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 year time horizon, they issued very thick reports, and they were really important for executives to sort of plan, because if you're going to, say, pay half a billion dollars for an oil field somewhere, you need to be able to predict demand and geopolitical turmoil 50 years out, and you need to have, you can't know what the future is, but you can come up with different scenarios, and you can protect your downside risk, regardless of what the scenarios are, as well as look for your upside opportunities regardless of the scenarios, because you're actually not looking at one potential future world, you're looking at multiple ones. These are scenarios, and you can meet the world where it will be in 10, 20, 30 years. And executives working their way through the ranks would know these things, would be able to do it. So it turns out that this was a very important division for Shell, and it caught a lot of imagination around the world from other companies. And in particular, uh, in for a period of time, Peter Schwartz was laughed at because he was coming up with the most far-fetched things, you know, things that were unthinkable that were never going to happen, such as the end of apartheid, or <laughs> even more laughable, the dissolution of the USSR. Okay. So of course, as you can imagine, by 1990, he's considered a sage and he's a genius because he's sort of predicted the future, not just about interest rates and demand for oil and climate change, but also things like the, the end of the Soviet Union. And so people said, hey, there is something to this. So it turns out that about a decade later, a high school acquaintance of his named Steven Spielberg 
uh, contacts him and says, Steve, I need your help. I'm producing a movie based on the Philip K. D. Uh, Philip uh, K. Dick uh, sort of short story, Minority Report. And the problem is that the story is only a couple of paragraphs long and a couple of pages long. And it there's really no setting and it needs a setting. So what I'd like you to do is convene some of the smartest technologists and futurists that you know, and just people who are just have a real febrile sense of imagination, bring them all into a hotel room for a couple of days and just feed them, lock them in and get them to, to talk through what the world of, I think at the time it was like 2070 was supposed to look like. And then it became like 2030, I think they lowered it back. But um, they said, he said, sure, let's do it. So he got a whole slew of people and he got like Douglas Copeland who had written like the Gen X novel, Microsurfs and other things. He got Jaron Lanier, who people know uh, today as sort of a tech pundit and futurist. He had the head of the MIT architecture school who uh, had written a book called City of Bits, which I own. And if you think about it um, today, if you hear the term City of Bits, you think, oh, what a cliche. Like, of course, all of the urban landscape will change because of data and digitization. But I can guarantee you in 1990, for someone of, of an eminence to be talking about something called the City of Bits, um, just sounds like the guy is sort of a, a cartoon character, not, a, not even on planet Earth. So very foresightful. And so the, he gets them all into a room together and they start thinking about um, what the world of the future would look like. And the key thing was that Spielberg wanted his future to be correct, if you will. He wanted it to be one where it would, it would last. What he, most science fiction at the time, when they were trying to think of the future, had people dressed in like silver suits and lycra with like, like a little emblem on their, on their, their side and maybe like a helmet on. Like he was like, no, that's not it. And so they started thinking about, well, what would it look like? It's a na national capital. And the, 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 the set designers had shown their plans in the morning. And these were, you know, these big Albert Speer, black marble monolithic buildings, like Ministry of Fear buildings. And all of the geeks were like, no, not happening. And the designers were like, what are you talking about? It's, it's a fiction. And there's like, like, it's the future. Like, how can you say no? It's like, he said no. And Schwartz said, actually, it can't happen because, because it's a national capital and historic buildings get preserved. They don't get knocked down. There's building codes that prevent the, the height of buildings that, that wouldn't be allowed in Washington, D.C. Not this year, not in a hundred years. We're going to find wooden buildings you know, that are three stories tall and we're going to put a plaque on it. We're not going to just bring it down for a big marble building. And so they, they, he nodded and he said, he went further and he said, a city is time depth. You've got buildings that coexist, some that are 100 years old, some that are one year old. And our city of the future has to have that time depth as well. Let me stop there and say that is why probably one of the most interesting dimensions of the, uh, of the movie is that at the very beginning, if you remember when Tom Cruise has to prevent the murder of the, of the impassioned and cuckold uh, husband, they go up into their like little jetpacky things into these motorcycles that then go into the air. Then they actually jetpack down. Steven Spielberg was very, very specific in saying that my cops will have jetpacks. 
let me just as an aside say Stephen Schwartz said, Stephen, I'm telling you from the standpoint of physics, jetpacks will not exist. And Steven Spielberg said, my cops have jetpacks. And Steven Steven Schwartz said, okay, you get jetpacks. And so not only do they have jetpacks, but later on in the film, as you see, they have the little epaulets, they have little sirens on their things. And at one point they're chasing uh, the main character in a keystone cop sort of way. And that was actually very deliberate to have the the whirling lights and the silliness of the jetpacks flying through alleyways. And that's interesting. Remember, alleyways and jetpacks, the juxtaposition. The beginning of the movie, what you have is is, is Tom uh, Cruise and the others going in, and where they land is in the middle of a park. The playground that looks like it could be from 1950, it's Georgetown, so it's a suburb of, um, of D.C., and the houses are all from basically the 1930 vintage. And again, the juxtaposition was incredible because he, they, it was, they very deliberately wanted to show something that was futuristic that you wouldn't expect that doesn't exist today with something that was grounded and centers you that does exist today. So what they did is they had to have consist- consistency. Now, all films actually have what's called a continuity editor. And the continuity editor is the person who manages consistency. And the person watches the whole film and all of the all of the shots in the cutting room floor to make sure that at every step of the way, there is continuity. A uh, classic example is that uh, if a person's holding the gun in the scene on his left hand, that when they cut to the scene from another angle, the person's not holding it from the right hand, uh, that, 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 that they've managed it. That if... Uh, the person jumps into his car to get to the house. That that he's that, and he jumps in the car wearing a blue tie. And he jumps out of the car because he's in a different location, different set, different day, wearing a blue tie as well, not a green one, right? And they just make sure that that that's all there, and they they take it very very carefully. In this meeting where they were creating a Bible of this artificial world that they were creating, conjuring up their counterfactuals, they were doing so making sure that there was consistency all throughout, that their frames, and as they tried to reframe the world, that it was still consistent, and that they were hewing to these classic rules. And that's going to be really important, because when we frame and we reframe, we need to actually make sure that there's that we change what's changeable. There's the mutability principle, that we don't make these radical changes, but try to have the most de minimis changes possible, the the, the, the minim- change minimization principle, and that our changes are all consistent with each other. So for example, if I want to rethink the haiku, and I do it as free verse with as many syllables as I like, that might be a problem, because in fact, that wouldn't be a haiku, right? Because a haiku has very strict uh, structures in terms of its uh, syllable count. When we try to frame, we want to hew to the consistency principle as much as possible to make sure that we don't do things that are a little bit too wild and therefore impractical. I love this because of the link to continuity, uh, the scenario planning of Royal Dutch Shell, etc. But also of, it links very well to what we were talking about before about the tsunami stones and about how by understanding the way things are going in the future, you can actually can prevent huge gaffes 
and beyond movie gaffs and continuity gaffs. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's some great gaffs on YouTube where it shows all some of the, the great continuity gaffs. I think in like Braveheart, there's like airplanes behind. Braveheart's a famous one, actually. <laughs> yeah, right. there, was a, there, was a lot, there was a lot of reporting done for that particular section that didn't make it into the final oh, wow. book. Yeah, and and I was Braveheart was is definitely a classic one. The most important was there was a sci-fi film from the 1950s, uh, a, low, a very low budget one where it was just everything was just completely off. But there's also some other lovely ones. I've now forgotten the name of it, but another sort of sci-fi movie where the protagonists jump into a um, into a car in the evening, and when they arrive at at the house, it's like invasion of the body snatcher sort of thing. When they arrive at the house, it's daytime. <laughs> it's just like it's, it's it's just too delicious and too and too, and too ridiculous. Sometimes you don't notice them. Like that's the worst thing. It's we don't notice them, and they're happening right around us. I would point out that in fact that that actually is the case, and it's it actually. I think a lot of very, a lot of people have to wear it on the chin that most audiences probably wouldn't actually notice that. And it's the question, well, what does it say about the, maybe the power of story to <coughs> put us into this other world where we actually don't pick up on these small things or that we don't have the attention, but that we need, nevertheless, um, people who are fastidious, because if you're fastidious in this one domain, you'll be fastidious in many others that we would pick up on. And there is this small, what Arnold Toynbee, the historian, called the creative minority. And I'll say that there's maybe this small group of maybe 5% of people who would pick up on it, and you really need to bring them on board and have them. So I still think it gets to the question of perfectionism, clearly, and how much you invest in, um, in caring of perfectionism. And it's. I think it's a very healthy debate to have because a lot of people feel like, hey, perfectionists are going to create a lot of problems for us. <laughs> Excuse me, in society, because they're delaying things, they're not getting done, they increase our costs. Sometimes, if it's too perfectionist, they don't actually do it, and that's a serious problem. But a a lot of what we're able to accomplish in the world is due to perfectionism, uh, if you will, the continuity principle on steroids. And we need to sort of be grateful for, for that and respect it. So we put men on the moon and bring them back because of perfectionists in the mathematical calculations. Um, lots of the, there's such there, the fact that we even have the term routine surgery is the thanks of thousands of people who basically had a zero tolerance for any fault whatsoever. In surgery, you anesthetize the person so that they actually are no longer breathing by themselves. You artificially breathe them through a tube put down there. You're able to then bring back their consciousness and revive them so that they can breathe on their own again afterwards. And then you're doing, and that's just simply to, op to be able to open up the person and do the surgery. This is incredible, right? And so... The, the point is that you need, we should be incredibly grateful for perf, to perfectionists for bringing us iPhones and telephone lights and airplanes that don't fall out of the sky and such a thing as routine surgery. Most of our life is doing it. And I think it's interesting because most of our, most people are not perfectionists. You have this maybe, it's like autistic, you know, I say this in a very great and, and loving way, 1% of people 
who are bringing the rest of humanity with them for the ride. Because Aiden, I don't know about you, but like with me, like I can't make a cell phone. I can't make it. I wouldn't even be able to make an automobile, right? If like, if the world were to end today, it would be you and me. Like I would have a one story structure and I'd be like, I'd be like wheeling you in a wheelbarrow, right? And that, and that's basically the limit of it. Um, and so we have to be really grateful for the people who are sort of willing to do that. And I've, I've, I've expanded this idea of, of the consistency principle uh, to this idea of perfectionism. But I think there's a, a link there that would be useful to, to remember. There's a quote by George Bernard Shaw, all progress depends on the unreasonable man or woman. And actually, it's true. Like that, that is true. Because most entrepreneurs are like going, going, you know what, this is bugging me, I'm going to fix it, I'm going to go after this and chase it down. But I wanted to tie it to something that is is really interesting about you brought up there is you can call it perfectionism. But like, I often think of Pixar and the brain trust that they have where you know, they they respectfully critique the movie. And I thought about the economist where you work as well, because the rigorous editing and if you think of it like extended prefrontal cortex that the neurodiversity of different opinions brings is so essential but underpinning all that is the psychological safety and the humility to go you know what i don't have all the answers and i'm open to your opinion uh very i i agree with all of that and i think there is a lot of that in organizations that do extraordinary things with extraordinary people or actually really have such an extraordinary culture that you can take ordinary people to do extraordinary things which is maybe which is very interestingly different right because there'll always be extraordinary people but whether they are actually to, able to channel, channel their abilities to actually do extraordinary things is really open in question because most things of extraordinary caliber are not done by individual well I would say most things of extraordinary caliber are not done by individuals, but by groups. Uh, behind it may have been an individual, and I think individuals, there are superlative individuals that do extraordinary things. I'm thinking of um, uh, Newton, for example, and Principa Mathematica, right? Einstein and his famous papers. But if you look at DeepMind, right, and Demis Hassabis, like their academic papers have between five and 50 people, you know, as co-authors on them. And he, uh, he was, he's the founder and CEO of DeepMind, the, um, the big AI lab that's owned by Google in Britain that has created everything from AlphaGo and AlphaZero to the protein folding AlphaFold. Anyway, uh, which protein folding is really important because all of life is made up of proteins and knowing not just its composition, its sequence, but its structure, how it folds, allows you to create new drugs and create new material sciences and synthetic biology so that organisms can actually do things we want them to do, like get rid of, uh, make it um, resistant to some sort of uh, pesticide, right, for example, so it would be grow more and so feed more people. So um, he's an example of someone who his success is about being able to motivate other people and to work in a group of others, not just do it themselves. And that culture of having people work together and see a common purpose and have that psychological safety is extraordinarily important because if you don't have it, you don't, you won't perform well. I find that I'm in an organization that is very meritocratic, 
really helpful to to be uh, is weirdly very humble. I think the people have a lot of uh, my colleagues have have extraordinary abilities, but we all keep it in check for a variety of reasons. One is I think kind of who we are as people, so that's nice, and we hire and recruit that. And a lot of our hiring is about cultural fit, um, less so about talent, because when we get to the point of surveying the people whom we're going to bring in, to be truthful, they're all freaking amazing, right? So it's really all about, there's a lot of amazing people. We, we find them and we, we track them and we, we tell them, hey, you're going to do your best work with us. Uh, so we want you to join us. But then we're really looking for cultural fit. But then it's about process. And it's about building into the system, the process to get the output you want. I make this the point I'm about to make to, to you, to lots of people, and they all it, they all race to tell me that it's not true. And I race to tell them, no, 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 you're wrong. Look, I know it's true. And it's this. I am a cog in the machine. Right? That's all I am. I'm a cog. My job is to be a cog. I'm not even a particularly good cog. I'm just a cog. I'm one of many cogs. Now, the people I say this to on the board of an organization, they're like, no, Ken, you're great. You're lovely. I'm like, trust me. It's like, I'm a cog. And what I mean by that is I'll look at an article and I'll be like the sixth person checking it before it goes out. And there's no other publication that I know of. I've worked at a lot of them and I've seen a lot of them that is so fastidious where they bring in someone who is experienced and has done a lot of things in journalism and has, has shown himself to be a competent editor in all these other ways to be the person who proofs the pages to close the page on a Thursday morning to send it to the print shop to go clean and then get printed around the world. And that's one of my jobs. And I sort of love it and because it shows our dedication to, to at every step of the way to process and have fastidiousness drive the outcome. So I, we get these small little burnishes and fiddles of things that, that can be either big things that are saved at the last minute or often just little small things where it's just like a burr that you can sand down word-wise. And that's exactly what we do. And it's what's interesting about The Economist in the world of media is that it is, it is our moat. It makes us, it's, it's, it's how we defend our franchise because although a lot of other media brands would like to have the audience that we have and the economics that they have, and re income that we have, subscribers that we have, and revenue, they're absolutely not willing to invest in cogs like me to get up at six in the morning on a Thursday to proof the pages of the U.S. edition, of the, or rather of the U.S. section, before it goes out to the, to the printers. Like, and, and that happens to every section. Right where there's a new person who will sit in, who will look at it afresh and sort of make some estimations about it. And again, this is after it's been edited, the edit's been reviewed, it's been checked by fact-checking, it's gone back to layout, it's gone back to another editor in the hierarchy, it's gone back to the original editor reread, it's gone back probably to a little grammarian to take a look at to make sure that all the grammar is right and all that, we have a grammarian on staff. And then it comes to another editor who's with a cup of coffee in the morning, looking at it and saying, oh, I think we could actually reword that a little bit differently. Um, and so that's the lesson there is that is, is not just fastidiousness, but it's also process and, and, and culture and, and getting those things right. So many books written on the similarities between sport and business. And 
the best sports teams have exactly what you're talking about there humble players who know their cogs in the machine no player is bigger than the team and the team when that happens in a team the team starts to dysfunction and i i thought about that when when you were saying that but the other thing is it brings us back to what we talked about the last day where you rightfully said to an innovator listen to this show did you think it was going to be that easy where you could come along with the idea this is the process we have to do as innovators in a, in a machine when you need to bring a new idea to the fore you have to go through these processes because they're in place for the very reason and it's a pain in the ass to go through that process but it's so necessary it's not for nothing that joseph campbell uh who studied myths referred to it as the hero with a thousand faces and referred to it as the hero's journey and one of his great aphorisms is where you stumble there your treasure lies and you can sort of remember that from you know tales of knights and chivalry of, of the of the hero running through the forest and you know in search of the quest thinking that he's all is lost looking for the holy grail and he 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 falls on a on a branch and then he looks down and he finds that where he's actually fallen is indeed what he's been looking for all along and this small accident was anything but um we the important thing maybe in that is there's a fiction behind it and that is that where we stumble sometimes is not where our treasure lies but often we actually frame it in a way that we find meaning in what could actually truly be devoid of meaning and be meaningless but nevertheless because we imbue it with this meaning this artificial false and invented meaning that it works just as if it were meaning and so we by doing so we actually turn the base metal into gold we turn an ordinary stumble into something that is treasureful we look back and we say oh that mistake was the most important thing that ever happened in my life because it enabled me to do this this and this and this and that's just actually a fiction and a mental model that we've applied sort of putting uh into imbuing into the world something that it didn't naturally have but we decided we were going to give it and it worked nevertheless it had the same effect of it there's a wonderful aphorism by uh, benjamin franklin one of the america's founding fathers uh, in which he talked about all these different virtues and then he talked about humility and he said i never was able to measure i was never able to master humility it was one of the virtues that i actually never had but i found that if i faked it and gave the pretense of being humble it worked just as well as actually being humble and you think well that's right you know uh, that you can that that is about the outward manifestation uh, and that that's good enough even if it's not at its origin um uh genuine uh so it worked for everyone else because everyone could say oh frankly he's such a humble man but in fact he knew that he was very vainglorious himself it's so important though for mental health and you talk about this as well like the framing like it, it reframing and it's a perfect segue i don't know if you did that purposefully for reframing because when you talk about framing there's three dimensions of cognition you talk about in the book causality counterfactuals and constraints and they form the basis of framing and now that we've understood that we've done that over the last two show episodes but this is a beautiful entrance point for reframing that's right so when we reframe 
uh, when we're framing, we can get better with practice, right, of applying a frame. But reframing, we can't, uh, because it relies on what is called uh, in the psychological literature an aha moment. Uh, and there was lots of studies to show this, but one of the most important ones by, was by a man named Herbert Simon, who interestingly was a political scientist. He won a Nobel Prize in economics in around 1978. Uh, but he also was an early pioneer in artificial intelligence, of all things. And he did a series of studies in which he tried to have people uh, called the mutilated checkerboard uh, sort of uh, answer some, uh, basic questions of whether you could actually fit certain dominoes on a checkerboard if two of the white squares were removed. And what he found was that people would try to brute force the issue or would try to sort of reason through the issue and they would always sort of fail. That would never work. What you needed to do was reframe the question and what you had to realize was would be the answer is no, that if you can't actually get all of the dominoes to fit on a checkerboard or chessboard, that was missing two of the white squares, one at the top, one at the bottom, or I should say missing two squares. It turns out that you'd have to identify that to be the white ones at the top and the bottom, because of course, a domino would fit over every two spaces. And so it, it implies there has to be a white and a black. If you take two of the same color, you would not actually make able to make a, a clean fit. Okay. Um, but that requires a reframing, the aha moment. You have to sort of see that. So he was able to understand that there were these sort of what he called insight problems, where you can't reason your way through it. You have to have a new conceptual idea in your head to answer it. And that is actually quite interesting. He did that for DARPA, for the for uh, the U.S. military, which invested a lot in, in this sort of research. Let's stop and dwell on that for a second. There's an area of cognition, of reasoning, right, in which our reason doesn't help us, okay? In which going through our lives, we often think that we can actually improve with things, with time and with experience, that um, that we can use our mental abilities to sort of suss through, work through problems, suss them out, and therefore uh, come to answers and or come to different alternatives and then reach different answers. But it turns out that, uh, as the psychologists have pointed out and the cognitive scientists, that there's something else operating that is different, which is there's forms of problems where your reasoning doesn't help you reach the answer. What you need to do is accept that you're in a frame and deliberately try to reframe to change the frame that you're in, because unless you actually change your frame, you will not get the right answer. Okay. So, okay. So what does it mean to change your frame? Well, first you have to be aware that there are such things as frames. That sounds pretty obvious. You don't need to go to Harvard to learn that. But the fact is, it's anything but obvious because most people don't even think this. If you were to watch, you know, Westminster politics or, or politics probably in any country, the politicians are not talking about how they're framing problems and they're or they're, how they're going to try to reframe problems. And that's just not the language that they use and not the debates that they have. Um, if you're trying to talk strategy, if you're in a meeting with your boss and they're talking about strategy uh, and the future, they, if they're really wise, maybe they are talking about how they frame the problems and they're going up a meta level to how they see the world. But often they're not. They're just, just thinking about, you know, the more the here and now, and they're stuck in the frame that they have. The frame that they had had worked in the past, so they presume it's going to work in the future. 
What's interesting about that is that we're in a very interesting moment in history right now, all of us, in which we can axiomatically say that what was done in the past, whether it was the, the idea of how business operates in the 20th century or what we were doing just in 2019, is probably not the right answer for 2023. Because we are headed into an entirely new universe that we couldn't predict, whether it is the sort of informational anarchy and political rise of a political authoritarianism that we never uh, imagined just five, seven years ago, uh, where, where, where fundamental truths of how politics would work and how people would interact with each other is being thrown out. Cancel culture, being coming from the left, uh, being an affront to liberalism, which was seen as something from the left, is amazing that there's a, a whole cohort of people who believe that there's something sort of reprehensible and about just the idea of questioning, voicing, and challenging received wisdom and authority. As a, as a side note, I interviewed someone about this who is an MIT scientist whose tweets are labeled as being, you know, sort of against, you know, medical authority wisdom, uh, because he believed at the outset of COVID uh, that it was spread, get this, COVID could be spread, SARS-CoV-2 virus could be spread through the air, through aerosols, not through droplets when it was coughed. Heresy, heresy. Yeah, exactly, heresy. It was considered a heresy. And he says to me, it's like, my parents were refugees uh, who escaped Czechoslovakia in the Soviet occupation. And, and I grew up, you know, with where people were wearing t-shirts saying question authority. And I became a scientist because I questioned authority. And I'm being told by the social media platform that, that, that what I'm saying is against the WHO, as he says, because the WHO is filled with medical doctors and epidemiologists said, but I'm a physicist and I do fluid dynamics. And if you understand, want to understand the spread of a virus in the air, you got to talk to me. You're not going to talk to a doctor who can tell you how a liver is going to work. You're not going to talk to epidemiologists who can talk about how things are going to spread mathematically. It's like, you understand if there's going to be, if, if this is a aerialized virus, I'm the guy, right? And so it's just an interesting thing that, that, that we have this whole environment now where uh, that has shifted. And so in all these different domains, the world of the future is looking very different than the world of the past just three years ago. So we need to get better at reframing. And the first part of reframing is first knowing that there is frames. Secondly, you then want to understand is the frame that you're in a good fit and can you still use it or do you need to adjust the frame? Stick with the frame, just change it. And we saw that when, when I gave the example of the of the of the Elon Musk's Falcon rockets that could land back on its launch pad. He didn't reframe how rockets were going to work. He took the same principles of the laws of physics and he took the same principles of rocketry. He just changed one of the constraints. He said the idea that we couldn't get the you know these micro motors to determine uh, uh, you know the, the the correct thrust at these very small little increments and get very good sort of location data of where you are at any one moment down to the nth degree, all of those constraints have gone away because we've got computers that are incredibly powerful and very inexpensive, and we've got GPS, and we can now actually apply this technology and actually do what we couldn't do before because the environment had changed, because the constraints we had were lucent. Right? And so he 
kept the same frame. He just sort of just adapted it for this new technology, this new innovation. But sometimes you actually need to take the frame and, and change it all together. And there's three ways to do that. You can either go into your repertoire of frames and find it. You can you can get another frame that existed from somewhere else, and then you can apply it in as well. You don't have it in your repertoire, but you have to sort of reorient it from somewhere else and borrow it from somewhere. And then the third one is just invention altogether. You have to sort of invent a new frame by saying, hey, there's there, what we have right now doesn't exist, so we need something entirely new. Now, that's very rare to do when you reframe by simply finding something that is completely different, requires the sort of clean slate strategy, as we call it in the book, in which you are sort of, you try as much as possible to leave out all of the intellectual inputs that have led you to where you are today, and with a fully tabula rasa, blank slate and fresh mind, reimagine something from its first principles so that you can actually then come up with a better frame that fits it. But again, that's extraordinarily rare. More likely, what we're doing is we're saying, hey, this is how this problem has been solved in this environment. Uh, this is how they frame it. And if I ad adopt this frame, take it on, and apply it in this new domain, it will work and it'll, it, it'll, it, it'll help us solve our problems here now and it'll be a better fit. Because the frame's not wrong per se, it's just not a good fit for the circumstances that you're in. And when we are faced with a problem and we can't see an answer through it, it's usually pretty helpful if we take a step back and try to reframe our problems by imagining, well, how would we see it from a different way? Um, what would it look like if I were, you know, someone else? If I was a, um, if I was a, if if I have a problem in biology, what would it look like if I if I'm a chemist? What would it look like if I'm a physicist, right? If I have a problem in the economy, what would it look like if I was, you know, a scientist, right? Um, how could I reimagine? the the situation how would my values change how would what i see as inviolable truths be different and the interesting thing about the crisis that we're in with with the lockdowns and the pandemic is that there were a lot of things that we thought were truths and and weren't truths whatsoever and and a lot of people were very surprised by it. and i'll just name two one was the fact that we never would have imagined that people would have been able to work from home in the way that they did, and they'd be as productive. We thought you had to go into the office to do work, but it turns out that was just a location. Work was what you actually did, not where you went. And so working from home was an incredibly useful thing. But the, the contrary of that is there was a, a belief, and a pretty well-fixed belief, particularly among the sort of the the digital education cabal of which i was one of them i've actually written a book on on digital education data and 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 education and schooling and there there was this real belief that you know like you know lockdown happens kids can't go to school and me and others were like we got this one don't worry been waiting for it all waiting for it for a couple decades Let's flick the switch. Zoom is the new schoolhouse and let's go. 
And kids are not only are they going to learn, they're going to learn better. They're going to be, they're going to, it's not going to be about catching up. It's going to be about accelerating. This is going to be an accelerant. Finally, we're going to apply data and digital technologies to the schoolhouse and to the education, and we're going to have learning successes. And that didn't happen. It was just the opposite. I think a lot of kids, they didn't waste their time, but it was, it was, it was frustrating for the parents. It was frustrating for the, for the teachers. It was frustrating for the administrators. And most importantly, it was devastating for the kids. They could not, some kids could learn um, electronically and, uh, and over networks. Most of them could not. And I think there was also pathologies involved in getting them to try. And so that was also something where we had to sort of reframe how we saw the world because it wasn't what our expectation was. There's so much in that, man, that like, I just wanted to draw a few threads that came through. One of us, like you were saying about the the foresight of an authoritarian state, for example, but minority report was was essentially that was one of the things about this policing and, you know, um, f- uh, what was it pre crime, etc, you know, and we're, we're seeing elements of that at the moment, you know, so the idea of, of scenario planning is so so valuable, then you mentioned about the guy on Twitter from MIT, and the authority bias that was there, and he was questioning authority, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. It reminded me of the f- f- CEO of iHeartMedia. He was the former CEO of MTV, Bob Pittman. He had a saying, bring me to the dissenter. What did the dissenter say? So this idea of, of leaning into that is so, so valuable. And there's a beautiful line, a beautiful phrase you gave me from the book, which is the storage phenomena. And you talk here about Einstein, about how... This idea of the checkerboard, your past successes can also blind you to future scenarios or future opportunities. And this even happens the very, very best of us like Einstein. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you you see that in in some, not all, but some entrepreneurs. There are serial entrepreneurs that do things differently, but others that stay exactly in the frame that they were in. Um, The very famously uh, David Petraeus who did great work uh, in one mission in which he was able to um, uh, use sort of uh, counterintelligence uh, to um, uh, to uh, uh, to sort of fight an insurrection, tried to apply the exact same methods uh, in another combat situation, and it didn't work whatsoever. And so that was a real serious uh, problem because the two sort of uh, theaters of conflict were were completely different. But his frame was the same, and he felt that he could fight the same war in one domain in another. And in fact, of course, in the military, there's the there's the aphorism that you know uh, generals are always trying to fight the last war. Um, Napoleon uh, had a wonderful aphorism in that respect, which is that a good army, he said, has a young general and old captains. Now let's remember that that was very self. So flattering to him because he has been always the young general. But there's actually something to that. Um, I think uh, newspapers uh, do well when they have a uh, a young general and an old captain. Um, I'm a, sadly, pathetically, I've become a cog in the machine. So maybe even <laughs> consider the old captain now uh, and not the young general. But I'd once been a young general, and um, 
I saw was... your hand in your uh, in your pocket there, Napoleonic. And... <laughs> oh God, that's absolutely. It's, it's the French origin. Absolutely, incontestablement. Um, the so the and the, but the but why is that? And the reason why is that uh, when you're younger, when you're older, you've seen the problems before, and therefore you think you know what the answers are because you know what they how they were solved before, how they weren't solved before. This is a caricature. It's not always true, but it's sometimes true. It's largely enough true that we have expressions like you can't teach an old dog new tricks and all that. But when you're younger, you see it with a fresher set of a fresher mind, a, a fresher set of eyes. It's it's new, and therefore you're not as wedded to the way things are done. You don't have as much investment in the status quo, the sunk cost in that respect, or the path dependency. And therefore, you can actually come up with, you know, fresh answers that might be seen as um, as ridiculous or not feasible, but give it a try and it does work. And that's so customary that it's almost a cliche that that happens. But but organizations that sometimes choose older people to lead them, thinking of ja- the, the seniority system in Japanese organizations, often don't have the same sort of fire in the belly and fresh way of thinking about the universe that allows them to succeed. Whereas other organizations that are willing to um, take gambles with younger executives and younger leaders, or more importantly, may have senior executives, but again, invest in younger leaders and have an easy way for them to access resources so that they can experiment and, and be successful and therefore the organization successful, that works very well. To, to plug the economist again, um, we typically have the standard in which we chose our um, our editors at a relatively young age, at around the age of 40. And there was, and this, we've only had about 15 editors in the last almost 200 years. And so, and they typically, in the 20th century, certainly, um, they typically lasted for about, a, in the second half of the 20th century, they typically lasted for a decade. So you, we got them young, we gave them 10 years of runway to have fun with it, and then we pushed them out the window. And the, the purpose of that was to stay young again and to sort of stay fresh and not sort of be an old, crusty entity, uh, which is sort of strange because we've been around for almost 200 years, 180 years now, that um that some people look at us and think of us as somewhat of a sort of um, an older entity and certainly our subscriber base because we cost a lot of money to, to subscribe to, um, is, is Hughes a little bit older, um, sort of around over over 45. Uh, so it doesn't seem like it's part of the TikTok generation. But in fact, we've often, throughout our cultures, made del- very deliberate attempts to um, to revitalize ourselves through not just you know th- through youth. And also, we also have the very liberal mindset, so no one feels that they have the answer, that, that we're constantly all on a group and communal quest to find the right answers. And therefore, it's through the intellectual tussle of discussion that good answers come up and that we should all feel safe and in voicing any view because the view is legitimate and we have to deal with it if it comes from the point of view of good faith. But interestingly, what that also means is that there's a lot of people, if you were looking at the at the newsroom, that um that where sections are run by by younger members of staff, not by the older ones. That's actually really important. Also, I should say that we found a way, shouldn't just be about the economist, I apologize, but since we're on the topic, um, of cycling through typically in news organizations it's a hierarchy and it's a ratchet and you get to one level say you go from being a correspondent to a editor and 
God forbid, you can't go back. Like, because it is a hierarchy. It would look like you like you got pushed off your perch. You did something wrong. And at The Economist, it's very different. It's a round robin where you touch the baton of being an editor and or I say like a, to run a section. And then you go back to being a correspondent. In some ways, being an editor is sort of unsexy and grueling. And being the correspondent is a lot of fun and chic and more rewarding. So people don't mind that. And so one of my office mates is someone who writes business columns who used to be the finance editor and he used to be the, uh, he was another section editor, I forgot of where. He had done all these other things. And you look at him now and you just think, oh, he's just a writer. But he isn't because he's allowed to have that liberty of, of, of moving throughout the organization in a fluid way. It's so important that, I, like, I think one of the things you said there is so important is that it's the expectation is not there. So, you, you know, it's how does it look to me? How does this look that I've been demoted? But you're like, kind of going, it's not a demotion, that's actually progress. But if you think about it from the framing perspective, you're picking up all these frames from different positions. You know, one of the things I, I played professional sports, and I go, I coached at the end of it, and I was going, I wish I coached when I was a player to understand what the coach is looking for and all these different things. And then you just get a different frame and you go, oh, oh my God. Exactly. So so Eric Schmidt, when he was the boss of Google, after about the first year, John Doerr, who's one of the major investors in it uh, and one of the big VCs in the Valley, who put him in that position, said, Eric, I want to get you a coach. We're going to get you an executive coach. And Eric said, no, you're not. I don't need a coach. And says, Eric, we're getting an executive coach. I think it's going to be useful for you. I think it's going to be good for you, good for the company, good for all of us. And Eric said, no, uh, I don't need one. I've been the CEO of Novell, a publicly traded company. I was at Sun Microsystems before that as a senior executive. I'm doing well in, in Google. I'm doing well at Google right now. And I don't need an executive coach. Like, I don't need a coach. I can just get on with my work. John Doerr thinks for a second and says, Eric, you know what, when you're at the Olympics and you see those swimmers and they all have coaches, you know, beside the pool, he says, yeah. And you know, you know, you know, when you're seeing professional athletes, right, you know, uh, baseball players and football players, and they all have a coach on the side, they're earning hundreds of millions of dollars, but they've got, and they're the best. The, in 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 their sport, but they've got a coach. And Eric gets a little bit quieter and says, I think I hear you. And John Tor says, I think we're getting you a coach. And Eric Schmidt nods and says, Okay, I think so. Let's do it. I got it. And the point there is that it was about reframing it. In business, you don't typically have a coach. This is I should say this this is probably around uh, 2002, 2004 that we're talking about, the time frame. In business, you typically didn't have a coach. And so it would seem like you needed someone who was part shrink and part like helper who knew your job better than you. But, but John Doerr thoughtfully reframed it from the sports metaphor, which because the coach can't perform as well as the athlete, but the, the coach can help the athlete become a better athlete. That's the purpose and of course great athletes constantly 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 praising their coaches as all writers should be doing to their editors 
just saying. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, that reframing was essential. Yeah, there's so much more in this book, and we're not going to get to it. But I really, really love the your perspective on neurodiversity. And given the the French origins, I pulled a quote that I'm, I'm sure you know, but I thought you'd love and it's by Proust. And he said, the only true voyage of discovery would be not to visit strange lands, but to possess other eyes to behold the universe through the eyes of another of a 100 others to behold the 100 universes that each of them beholds that each of them is. And I love that quote, because it what it brings to mind for me is a kaleidoscope of kaleidoscopes of how if you bring a diverse group of people together from diverse backgrounds, diverse education, but also if they've di they have diverse frames, they're going to see things that you just cannot see. And, that, and that's one of the, the, the goals of coaching is to bring diversity to somebody who's seeing stuff from an opinion who and also is over invested in it. Like I'm an exec coach. I care, but not not that much, not as much as you care. And that has its benefits as well. But here you share the story of Steve Jobs, who sought out Joel Podolny. And I love this story from this idea of diversity of frames. As you pointed out, uh, Steve Jobs, uh, in the last few years of his life, uh, realized that he had built a great company, but, but he wasn't going to last forever. And he needed to come up with a succession. And so he could do the succession from the point of view of, of, as a manager to find someone else to replace him. But he wanted to make sure that the culture that he built could actually last beyond him as well. And that was in some ways more important because bosses can come and go, but it's really about the, the culture of the rank and file and, and the leadership team to see that they can actually still sort of follow the, sort of the, the North Star that he had in all the different ways that he had it. So, uh, he was he was attracted to a very young academic named Joel Podolny, who had taught at Harvard Business School, and before he was forty, was plucked out of that institution to run the Yale School of Management. And when he got there, he started doing some radical things. So he actually changed the physical architecture of the classrooms and made it circular, not simply like a you know a square room, you know, and a lecture hall. He put. Um, the professors in a theater in the round sort of way, a little bit like King Arthur's court where there is no head. And then he also had a, a method called team teaching in which he had not one professor, but two professors at the same time teach classes. And he also changed the very nature of the accounting. So instead of something called like finance 101, he called it like society and humankind, right? <laughs> it's weird. It was like, imagine you're like, you dose on shrooms and then come up with this sort of this, this trippy sort of way of teaching business. And it was a huge success. And the reason why is he said very legitimately, hey, the world looks different uh, and business is different than it was when we created our curriculum. The traditional curriculum for business schools were created around the time of World War I, a little bit before. And then they were, all, it was actually, interestingly enough, all completely revised um, around 1945 to 1950 by most of the schools because they realized that the world had changed so considerably between basically, you know, 1910 when business schools were sort of coming to their, into their own and 1950 when they had to train a whole new generation of leaders often who had served in the military to then um, think about the world of business. 
And so this was the next big break, and Joel Padoni was running it. And the idea of team teaching was the point that he and changing the famous case study of how business schools taught, which was basically forcing people to think about different scenarios and finding the correct template or frame to use for a given scenario, <clears throat> was the idea that there's no one answer to any problem. And the problem, the concern that he had with the case study method is that it implicitly presumed that there was a single template that you could use, and you were actually in some ways graded to find out if you could find the right template and then use it. Now, the case study method was brilliant to teaching frames, right? Uh, it was an incredible innovation, and the book goes into it, so people who want to learn more about it can read about the history of, of, of the case study method pioneered at Harvard at the law school because businesses don't have cases. Law schools have cases. It's a legal case. So the case study method came from that. You had a case book and it was just simply people who taught at the business school who had been to the law school at Harvard who actually applied that same terminology uh, to then create the, the case study method. And it was a great innovation at the time. It took business education or any education later that would, had been sterile and sort of dry and academic and classroom focused and abstract and learning principles and said, no, here's a situation. Here's a problem. It's real. And what do you do about it? Now, the key thing about the case study method when it was done very well and at Harvard, indeed it was, is they were not looking for what the answer was so much as how you thought about the problem, the frame that you applied to it. That's what made framing so important. And that is like the deep secret of the book, which is people who've gone through some of the most extraordinary um, institutions in the world are all aware of the concept of framing. And everyone who, and that means West Point, and that means um, a great Silicon Valley venture capital fund, and that means Harvard Business School. But people who've not gone to these institutions or have not been in positions of authority and power at, at, at organizations like that, who've not been exposed to the concept of framing, needed to learn about it. So that's why we wrote the book Framers. So the, the, the point about the case study method is that it, it gives you these templates of frames and you find the right one and you apply it and you see the world in this way versus that way. The problem that Joel Padoni had with it is that it was presuming that there was just one. And he wanted to show that there was multiple ones. And by having multiple teachers teach the same class at the same time, you could do that. He then was plucked by Steve Jobs to run Apple University. And doing that, he was able to bring Apple into the environment of recognizing the world that you can see things in different ways, that to answer the questions, to, to get the right answer to questions, you often have to have the right frame in mind or to change the frame if that's most appropriate to get to the right answer. And that when you argue with someone, you don't actually have to argue, if you will, about the very substance, if you will, of the, of the question at hand, but you should back up a second and, and try to understand from the other person, how did you get that answer? Well, and, and and in effect say, well, what is the frame you're using? Because what I'm seeing is this. And and <clears throat> from my frame, it would be madness to do what you're suggesting. We should really be doing it this way. How is it that we're sort of butting heads? I really don't understand. When you do it that way, and when you even use a language like that, um, it's very respectful. Just being able to say, I see things differently is a, an incredibly gracious way of handling conflict because it acknowledges that we both have this legitimate way of seeing the world. 
that that there's a difference, that we're not going to beat around the bush, we can be very overt about it, and that we should try to work together and interact to find out um, if we can see things the same way, and if so, maybe we'll reach the same answer, or if we see things differently, maybe I'll learn something that I didn't know before, and we'll both be better off for it. It's, it's, it requires humility, to be sure, but more importantly, it requires an, a, an ethic or a spirit of pluralism a recognition of this dignity and value in other people and in the interaction with other people. And that's why in the book we make the case that there's only one frame that's the that's a bad frame, and that's a frame that excludes all other frames. Other than that, we should accept frames and we should acknowledge it. And often the frame isn't wrong, it's just a bad fit. And we give lots of examples of that. The final chapters on pluralism, etc., are the most meaningful I felt and the most touching. I, I love them. And, and I really encourage anybody reading the book to get to those chapters, because I know so many times you're, you're like, oh, I must finish that book on my bed side locker, and it's not finished. Get to the end of these chapters, because Ken and his co-authors bring us on that journey to get there. And it's it's a magnificent journey. Because you add it's you add frames as you get there, and then you see what the big kind of uh, message is at the end, and it's a very human message. And one of the things that I loved about it was uh, you talked the last day about tsunami stones, and I, I, I often think about tsunami stones as these were the stones to warn people that don't build beyond this point because tsunamis have happened here in the past, and they've often grown over, and people don't ignore them today. And Ken mentioned on episode two about the tsunami stones of the past for great atrocities like world wars, for example. But one of the things you talked about was cognitive oppression. And I thought this was so, so important because we forget about these things because physical oppression starts as cognitive oppression. And I pulled a quote here that I'd love you to riff on. You said, cognitive oppression leaves a void. It is distinguished by what is absent, not what exists. When societies restrict that variety of mental models, when they deny the legitimacy or existence of alternative frames, it is not just individuals who suffer, all of humanity endures an invisible loss. And you add here, and by the way, I want people to think about organizations do this as well. We use mental models to contemplate and interact with the reality around us. So choosing and applying a frame is our most powerful tool. A diverse mind makes us better individual framers and a diverse team leads to better solutions. A similar advantage from embracing multiple frames holds true for society and humanity generally. Just as individuals benefit from diversity, so does society benefit from pluralism. Beautiful. Oh, wow. Um, I can't help but think that uh, I agree with that. <laughs> um, here, here. Exactly. You, you would hope. Um, the, uh, when, I, when we wrote those lines, uh, and particularly this idea of, the, of suffering and invisible loss, I was thinking of two academics, two scholars, uh, and we can put their names in the show notes, who wrote a book called Connected, unconnected. I'm now forgetting the name of it. They've done a. They were. They were. They used to uh, be grad students at Harvard, and they wrote. Uh, they did a brilliant TED talk on looking at the fingerprints of censorship and how censorship leaves a mark. And what they did 
is they did uh, sort of a big data analysis in, of the social sciences and quantitative social science, as the term is called. And they analyzed the references in the media and in the press and in books of, of uh, intellectuals in pre-war Germany and then the lead up into the 30s uh, during the Nazi regime and then in the 1940s. And they identified things like citations of Marc Chagall, a Jewish painter, uh, going from being you know, one of the most talked about painters in the early 1930s to basically not being mentioned at all in the 1940s. And there was that invisible voice, that lacuna, that that lack of pluralism denied it. But if we think about a business meeting in which we don't have this respect for pluralism, that invisible loss is that invisible loss of someone voicing an opinion of the Cassandra saying, don't do that, that could be really dangerous for us. Or someone just simply saying, I like this idea, but I think I've got one to build on it that might be better and be more appropriate for us. And if you don't feel the psychological comfort to voice those opinions, because the last time you tried to, you were shouted down, or just because the last 10 times you did, you were they sort of everyone agreed with you, but you were still ignored because you didn't have the right genitalia, because you didn't have the right salary, because you didn't have the right title, because you went, you didn't go to the right school, right? For all the reasons that you that that might have happened, um, you don't, you're no longer on the 11th and 12th and 13th time. You just hold your tongue. You just watch and listen. And you just think, eh, I don't need to say it again. I don't have a horse in this race, and that's a real pity. So that's why not only in the in sort of in the social, in sort of the political sphere, in the societal sphere, but also in the business sphere. A respect for pluralism is so vital because if if we don't have our if we accept the fact that nobody knows the future that nobody has the totality of the right answer that together we can probably all come together and reach some of our better solutions and the right solutions then we need to have everyone pulling in a war and have everyone feel that they're committed into building the society or the company that we want and if we don't create our institutions that foster that and produce that as an outcome, well, shame on us. I had a quote there I'd picked out that I absolutely love, but I'm going to leave that for our audience to get a copy of this book. It's a fantastic book, along with uh, uh, Kenneth, Victor, and Francis. They did a magnificent job. And Big Data is another book. I have it there on my shelf, a hard copy. And uh, perhaps we might riff on that in the future because it, it's still a, a magnificent read. Kent, for people who are interested in finding out more about you, where can they find you if they didn't hear you in part one and part two? They can go to the website kukier.com. That's my last name. And so it's C-U-K-I-E-R.com. There's also framers-book.com. Um, and if they're so inclined, they could go to economist.com. So there's no shortage. Ken, I am so grateful for the time you've spent with us. It's a magnificent book and magnificent read. You also have other books as well, many other books. And we talked about your cog cognitive foraging the last day, another great term that you've given me. You've given me loads of great terms from this book and sparked magnificent thinking. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm so grateful. Author of Framers, Make Dis Better Decisions in the Age of Big Data, Kenneth Kukier. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Aiden. It's been great to be on the show and what you're doing is incredible and your audience is amazing. And I've been following them on Twitter and watching the conversations and I'm really, really grateful. In fact, you're an author and you're pleased to sort of be in a hermetically sealed bunker 
sort of producing something, but then when it releases to the world, you want to see its impact and you want to interact with others. And what you're doing is indispensable by bringing these ideas to others. So thank you. Thank you, man. That's beautiful. Beautiful, Ken. Thanks so much, man. That was awesome as ever, as ever. Yeah, thank you. As always, The Innovation Show is proudly brought to you by Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to transfer funds with ease and manage multiple payment workflows. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. See you very soon.